I mean, did I know that Alexandria was going to be a telegenic media star that could go walk on to, you know, the late show and kill it? Nah. Did I know she was good in interviews and stuff when we were practicing and coaching and training? Yeah, for sure. Right. Did I know that she looked good on camera? Absolutely. But I didn't know she was going to be the Michael Jordan of American left politics. No. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Corbin Trent, has made himself part of some of the most notable recent campaigns and organizations on the progressive left. He joined the communications team for Bernie Sanders in 2016 after organizing for him in Tennessee, and then went on to help found brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. He became Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's director for communications on her campaign and helped staff her on the House side and with her PAC. Corbin recently started No Excuses PAC to take on Senator Cinema and Manchin. He has a great story. You'll want to listen. So first, our sponsor, then my interview with Corbin Trent. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Corbin, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Certainly. My name is Corbin Trent. Uh, happy to be here with you today. I most uh, recently have been working on uh, policy with groups like New Consensus, ASEG, Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, and others. I've been also working on messaging and marketing for the Democratic Party and some of our policies writ large uh, with a group called No Excuses PAC. Uh, formerly, I got into this uh, political side of things through the back door. I started in manufacturing, and right before I got into politics, I was actually uh, running food trucks. Uh, I had a, had a group of food trucks that I operated and got in through Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2015. Then that sort of evolved into me getting more and more engaged and co-founded Brand New Congress, co-founded Justice Democrats, ended up working through that connection uh, closely with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez through her initial primary bid um, and was her communications director on the campaign, then was the communications director on the campaign and the House side and also did some work uh, with her PAC, um, Courage to Change, and then sort of that led into what I'm doing now. It's the elevator biography. It's the standard food truck to AOC to... I mean, it's the same story, right? It's the same story everybody has. So, (laughs) Uh, Did you grow up in Tennessee? I did. Yeah, I grew up in a little burg called Morristown. Um, It's a a small town of, I don't know, 25, 30,000 people. It was kind of a uh, an interesting place in that it was 
it's near a place called Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was uh, part of the Manhattan Project. Uh, obviously, TVA was sort of instrumental in the region uh, in, in terms of providing uh, jobs and growth and industry. And then there was a little bit of a boom from a group called uh, American Inca, which was big in uh, World War II, nylon and other productions that sort of kept the the community employed for a long, long time, and then transitioned into furniture and stuff. So it's a neat little place in that it was a place where people could really make a life for themselves with a high school degree, right? You could grad, you could go to high school, um, get out, and then work in industry and that sort of thing and raise a family uh, on one salary for a long time. And then, and I was born in 80, and then through my life, I saw that change, obviously. So, Did you go to more than a high school degree yourself? I got my GED. The the even the high school degree was too much for me. Um, so I just it, education was not my uh, was not my bag. I'm not an academic. No. Did you go to school in any other things like vocational? I went to culinary school ultimately. So I'd uh, I I got out at 18. Um, I inherited a company from my grandfather manufacturing furniture components, and then another one manufacturing boring machines, and did that for about seven years. Um, and then that became more and more like I was going to be, instead of a manufacturer, I was going to be a distributor. So we were just buying parts pre-made from India or China and then, you know, unboxing them and reboxing them. And a lot of our customers were, were going under, we were working with people like Vaughn and Lazy Boy and Lad and Universal and all these furniture manufacturers. And they were collapsing because they were facing the same thing. They were just becoming distributors as opposed to manufacturers. So, uh, as that wound down, I decided I would, uh, follow something I would, I'd kind of dreamed of, which is going into the food industry. I love food. I love, you know, there's a lot of overlap. Ironically, you know, we were making a joke earlier that the typical, uh, route from food into AOC. But what's funny is if you look at these campaigns like Bernie's and stuff where it's not, uh, professionals, right. Where it's not people that are in the professional political field, there was a lot of actors and stagecraft people and food service people. And there is sort of a, I think a commonality between what draws you to politics and people, uh, and food service anyway. So then I decided, you know, I could probably, uh, do better to actually figure out how to do this in a school setting. So I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and, uh, got a culinary degree there. So what do you, what do you like to cook? I'm really drawn to a lot of uh, anything from the continent of Asia. Uh, you know, I like everything from uh, Russian kind of cuisine to dumplings. Uh, I really like a lot of the Chinese stuff and curries and uh, basically anything with spicy, sweet, and salty uh, combined is, is what I like to cook. So. so what was your route from Culinary Institute to running food trucks, which you said you were doing? Well, so I did fine dining for a while in New York, and... I was working. I was working at a place in Armonk, New York, and if and it's basically a little Westchester burg outside of uh, New York City, right? And it's money like I hadn't really been accustomed to being around. These people that are you know racing thoroughbreds on the weekend, they're buying you know two million dollar horses and things of that nature. So it was a different clientele that I was uh, that that I was interacting with. I was working in front of house at the time. I worked in that for months. And I had uh, an experience with a table that uh, sort of made me con- reconsider what I was doing in terms of fine dining. I just uh, found that I didn't want to spend my time or, or talent making the, the lives of folks that didn't know what they wanted more comfortable. So I, I decided I wanted to do something else. And I thought about doing a food truck in New York, but it was way more complicated. There was a lot more regulation. I mean, obviously red state, blue state, there's a lot of differences. Some of them uh, were easier in my particular red state of Tennessee. So I could... Uh, 
I could start a food truck much more easily here. So I came back to Tennessee, started a food truck. The idea was to turn it into sort of a, um, I don't know, like a Shake Shack or a, or a Chipotle multi-unit chain. But uh, it turns out you can't cook burgers to order in a food truck with the speed that you need to. So I ended up getting out of that. But, but it sounds like through the company you inherited and the work you did there and and then the world of food trucks and and fancy restaurants, you're learning a lot about the U.S. economy and how it works. Yeah, I learned I learned a whole lot. You learn some of these things through failure, right? And you learn through, through success and watching other people. And yeah, I, you learn the direct impacts of the action or inaction too. That was one of the things that really drew me to Bernie in 2015 is I'm, you know, I'm sitting on the food truck listening to him on Tom Hartman. He's doing brunch with Bernie or whatever. He's talking in a way about uh, trade policies and other things that really resonated with me because I'd experienced the real world results of what those trade policies did, right? And seen people's means of making a living, means of providing for themselves, for their families, for their communities sort of be eroded because of those things, right? And this this concept, you know, I, I, my family was mostly all liberal Democrats, um, but they were more of the, I don't know, the Bill Clinton variety, right? And I had uh, an aunt of mine, she wasn't quite yet a Bernie, Bernie supporter. She was still, I think, in the Hillary bandwagon. And one of the things she would talk about is how she went to school to become a teacher and she worked a part-time job and paid for her school as she went through and things like that. I was like, yes, that's exactly right. You worked a part-time job and paid for your college education. You know, listen to what you're saying. That's not a possibility now. That doesn't happen. That's why I'm fighting for this change. That's really what I think we should be able to do is work 20 hours a week and pay for school and get out debt-free. You know, thank God you did that. But uh, and it's funny, like I, the first job I ever had out of high school was at a, was at a chain factory. And that chain factory had been uh, 10 years prior to me going in there to work for the hour and a half that I lasted. It was hiring people in at like, you know, $25, $26 an hour. And a decade later, when I went in, I made nine seventy five, dollars And that's not the way wages were really, you know, at least that's not the story I'd been told of how wages work. Um, and even in the worst case scenarios you'd hear, wages have been stagnant. What I experienced, at least where I was from, is not only were wages not going up, that our capacity to provide for ourselves was going down. Our lived experience was changing in a bad, bad direction. So, yeah, I got a lot of that. So was that, was the 2015 the first time you were kind of politicized or had you been? Yeah. I, I went to a Obama rally in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. That was the only time I'd ever, you know, uh, that was the first time I voted. I gambled on elections, things of that nature, if that's political, but you know, other than that, no. So tell me a little bit more about what it was about Bernie that made you start changing your life and moving in a political direction as an activist. What was he saying that that you heard? I think a lot of times when politicians talk, we don't necessarily remember the words that they say, but how they made us feel, partly, right? From Bernie, what I got was a person who understood the struggle that was happening around me, right? I went from a place with beautiful parks and all this stuff to a place decimated by opiate addiction, right? There was pain clinics. There were more pain clinics than public parks, in the place that I grew up, right? And when Bernie, he went to West Virginia, he talked about that sort of thing. I, you know, he talked about when he was in Pennsylvania, when he was doing these tours, like he talked about a lack of our capacity to manufacture. He talked about these things in a way that didn't seem like he was just paying lip service. He was talking about something he believed. That was one of the things that I think drew me to Bernie is that I felt like Bernie not only understood 
what was happening in the country and understood some of the problems, some of the things that had caused those problems, but had a genuine connection to the people that were feeling this way. He didn't feel distant and disconnected from what I would think of as uh, normal people. It didn't seem to think of us as the others, right? Which I often got from politicians. Do you think of him as a ideologue or a pragmatist? Where do you fit him in? Because he's a person different than a lot of the rest of our politicians. My view of Bernie has sort of evolved, I guess, over the past six years. When I first, you know, was excited about Bernie, I, I sort of saw him as more of an outsider, right? For one thing, I saw him as more of a a person willing to make really radical changes. As I've watched Bernie operate, he's way more of an institutionalist, I think, than I thought he was initially. He has a lot of respect for uh, the institution of the U.S. Senate and just sort of the process, right? When he says, these aren't radical ideas. I mean, he's not kidding. He doesn't, these, you know, he doesn't think of them as radical ideas, and mostly they're not. Um, so I think of him absolutely as a pragmatist. I think that our political spectrum has gotten kind of skewed to the point that he seems like a lefty. Um, but to me, you know, I think he absolutely is a pragmatist. I think in a normal political spectrum, he would be definitely uh, in the center of, uh, of what should be American politics. I mean, he ran a city, you know, he, mm -hmm. he knows something about governing Yeah, uh, that, you know, maybe someone who's only been a legislator doesn't always grasp. He's also run campaigns. I mean, not for nothing, running a, you know, running a presidential campaign that raises a quarter billion and comes out of nowhere to do, you know, a lot of that was decisions that were made and plans that were set in motion. You know, obviously there was a staff and that sort of thing that, that enabled that to happen too. But I think that's any leader is going to be able to utilize their people in an effective way. That's another, you know, so yeah, I think Bernie's got a, a real... Uh, a real capacity for leadership. He's got a real capacity for inspiration. His consistency and his record were, I think, there were things that I hadn't seen in the in political world before. So yeah, I think Bernie is a unique, I mean, he's still, like I was looking at some of the polling that's coming out now as far as what the most valuable endorsements are from politicians. And they polled like Trump, AOC, and a hand, you know, handful of other, Mitch McConnell. And Bernie was the most valuable asset for Republicans and Democrats uh, alike of any other politician. He often comes in uh, highest as far as favorability goes. You know, Bernie has been able to, you know, it's not just me that likes Bernie, obviously. Even in deep red East Tennessee with some of the Republican folks that I knew, there was, there's not a disdain or a distrust for the man, right? And I think that's a, a very unique and valuable thing to have too. Well, he has kept his independence by orneriness and, you know, just like, you know, like deciding that he's going to stay an independent, right? Despite the pressure to join a party and uh, just like being willing to vote one when other people are 99 against you from time to time. That is definitely a kind of an asset. And he also learned how to get the independent vote, I think, in the state in order to build that career that he has there. I think he learned similar thing, at least it appears from the outside, with regard to working in the Senate, too. He is able to sort of bring folks together, you know, behind the scenes and do some really cool things. He's done with VA legislation and, and amendments. He's done some amazing things, especially in terms of amendments and being able to work uh, across the aisle in some pretty interesting ways, um, as long as he keeps it low key and out of the press. <laughs> but yeah. So, so if I understand right, 
you started to kind of independently work for him in Tennessee. Tell me a little about that. Well, so they started uh, the campaign uh, led by uh, a couple of folks on the what became the distributed team, Zach Exley um, being one of them, were working, I think it was a June 29th was the date that they were shooting towards. And they were essentially organizing to create a nationwide house parties, right? They were going to do this address from Bernie and they were going to get the campaign organized and give us all something to do, right? And a way to be involved in the campaign. And that was the first sort of uh, opportunity I had to have a tangible, you know, a goal to shoot for. So I basically just started volunteering to organize that event. And then what was interesting is other events, obviously in the area started popping up, Nashville, Johnson City, Knoxville. Etc. And you could communicate with people that were organizing those, right? So I started developing relationships and, and connections with folks that were organizing in Tennessee, and met some folks in Montana uh, through the systems that the that the campaign had made available. And that that day came and went. Um, it ended up being it actually wasn't a very uh, productive. <laughs> productive event. There was no ask. Uh, they didn't have anything ready, really. Um, the campaign hadn't gotten caught up with the enthusiasm and excitement that, that was already there to no fault of their own, Zach. I'm not criticizing you, Claire. Not, you know, anyway. So then I continued basically with the relationships that I developed, right? And I was driving to Nashville and I had some ideas for how we could do things. The funny thing about Tennessee is it's like so many other Southern states is it was a really, it was a democratic stronghold. And we're not just talking pre, you know, Nixon here. I remember the senators were Gore and Sasser, both Democrats, not that long ago. Not that long ago. And, you know, you go, we had a Democratic governor, uh, Sunquist. We had, for example, of the nine representatives, we had five of them were Democrats when Obama was first elected, right? So it was a blue state. And, you know, I thought that Bernie was well positioned to be able to start something that could transform this back into a blue state that was more connected to the Democratic Party and come back to the roots sans racism that we had to the Democratic Party. And so I started, like I said, you know, driving around the state. Uh, I had like a, got a projector and a screen and I was making, basically doing a pitch deck of here's how I think we can organize the state. If we do enough, maybe we can get the national campaign's attention um, and get Bernie down here for something and, you know, just sort of kickstart this, uh, this organizing. And some people were excited about it. I had no authority other than uh, irrational exuberance and a, a willingness to put a bunch of time into it. I'd sold the food truck so I could do this full time. So there were some challenges. I mean, organizing people uh, that are just sort of popping up on their own in a grassroots organic fashion, uh, they basically often don't want to be organized. That's why they're doing <laughs> it the way they're doing it. So it was, it was challenging, but that's how I got into it. And then ultimately, I just kept sending these uh, strongly uh, worded emails to Zach and Claire and eventually got a meeting and then got hired by the campaign. Why did they hire you? What was, what did they see in you? I mean, I don't know. I think the story I've heard is Zach liked the, you know, he, I mean, I had basically like this whole plan of organizing, how to organize the state fairly detailed. And I tell you, it's one of those things like when I, if I told you you had a good sense of humor, what that'd probably mean is that you laughed at my jokes and I laughed at yours. You would have a similar sense of humor is what I'm actually saying. And I, and I think that's what Zach saw is that I was organizing in a way that he also wanted to organize, right? So he saw a compatibility, a way for us to sort of work together. Zach's sort of always been a bit of a uh, uh, a seeker, I think, of people and sort of a collector of people. 
and looking for people to help him organize things and build things. So when he found people that had uh, similar ideologies, similar, you know, theories behind how to organize, I think it was uh, exciting. So that, I think that's what he saw. It wasn't only that, right? It was also that he saw some similar diagnosis about economic ills and prescriptions about changes to make uh, yeah. in politics. Yeah. I guess that, yeah, I remember one conversation we were having before I was hired and we were talking about, you know, economic decimation and rebuilding and various things. And one of the things he asked me is, where are we going to get the money? Where's the money going to come from? I said, well, as far as I know, we've got printing presses and we can, you know, we, we have a sovereign currency and we have the global reserve currency. I think we're good. I'm pretty sure that the monetary policy of the United States can handle this. That was one of the things I think that was one of the few powerful things that Trump had going for him is he understood debt, leverage, and money. And he understood that money is a, you know, is an invention that lives in our brains and it's definitely real in the sense that people live and die by it, but, you know, that it can be manipulated and used to your advantage. Well, I heard him say that he, you weren't what he expected when you arrived, <laughs> but, uh, but I assume you went to headquarters. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. What, what did you see and what surprised you? When you think about a presidential campaign, or at least I did, I thought of this sort of well-oiled, uh, well-staffed machine that was doing, it's the same thing when you think, I think when people think of the, uh, the American government, they think of this sort of omnipotent force, right? That can do what it wants. You know, that's how you get these conspiracy theories that that the United States has created the pandemic or whatever the case may be. So I was surprised by how bootstrapped and how grassroots the campaign was, right? And how unassuming everyone was. And also like you come in and uh, to a a situation where you're a guy that does have a culinary degree, been running food trucks, this and that, never worked in politics before. And you're sitting at tables with folks from Harvard and Yale, no offense to you. You think, what am I going to bring to this table, right? What is it, you know, maybe these things, maybe these degrees are important. Maybe this experience is important. And that's the other thing that I sort of figured out fairly quickly is that actually I did have something, you know, this experience that I had was kind of different, this different lived experience, the different work experience that I had. I was surprised that it that it was going to be so easily used. That was the other thing I was surprised by, that there was going to be a, an easy transition as there was into helping organize politics. As many people as I've talked to in the world of politics, the permeability of the space just strikes me over and over. How many people who don't necessarily have fancy qualifications or have fancy degrees, but they don't have any experience have just found a way in and moved very quickly up into positions of responsibility. Yeah. It's one of the few places where I've seen meritocracy at work. (laughs) Well, or, or, or an attempt at it, like a, a, a total openness to like someone works hard, seems to have good ideas. Let's put them in charge of something, right? Maybe not the training that's required or management, but they're, but the trust in people uh, who express alignment with you politically and put in some effort, uh, as you did and rose up to various different points along the way, right? Yeah, I do think it's, I mean, you know, I've worked in a handful of fields and I've never seen, there's not many places that I think are as trusting as I've found politics to be. But yeah, I mean, it is something where 
and it's, I don't know if it's, it's a weird combination. Like I think, for example, this particular instance was partly because professionals, careerists weren't going to go work for the Bernie Sanders campaign, period. I mean, it would be a career ending move for people if, you know, Hillary gets the nomination, she becomes president and you were the bum that uh, was working on the Bernie campaign, you know, you wouldn't do that. So there was this element of a lack of available talent, right? It was just sort of the, the dreamers and doers. And yeah, there were a couple of career people, but they were in a different lane than the normal democratic lane. So I think that combined with just politics in general, like you said, it is sort of something that's very uh, permeable and open. And I think those two, those two things came together and, you know, just the, there's personality types that are drawn because political work is, it's like a startup, right? If you're in startup mode, this is, you know, you're, you're working, working. You, if, if you are the type of person that just sort of gets obsessed with things and, you know, you're thinking about it in the shower, you're thinking about it when you're walking down the stairs, you're thinking about it in the car, you know, you can really crack some barriers that way. So, and I think that's who it draws to it. So tell me about your experience on that first Bernie campaign in terms of what you did, who you worked with and what you got out of it. So I ended up working on uh, what's called the distributed team. The campaign itself was focused on the first four states, right? So it's like Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And those are the places where there was a field team. They were doing ad buys there. They were, you know, the traditional campaign itself was very active in those states, right? Then there were the other states, the other 46 states. Um, actually, the, the plan that was written was called the other 46. So we were essentially able to organize in those other 46 states. And the goal, you know, we it went back and forth. So I worked with Zach um, Exley. I, most closely, I worked with Zach Exley. And we sort of became a, a, a bit of a duo. And there was some Robert Reeves, and there was a handful of other people I worked with. And what we were trying to produce, I guess basically to the goal was to produce volunteer activity, but organized volunteer activity that was doing something relatively effective, right? There, a lot of people wanted to do like signs, uh, honking waves, you know, fun events, right? Something that's more fun and exciting, but doesn't really necessarily result in something that's trackable and tangible. There would be people argue with me that that's not an effective way to... Anyway, um, so what we were trying to essentially do is create phone calls, uh, door knocks, uh, text messages, fundraising, you know, people taking a tangible action. And we tried a lot of different ways. The email list was growing and growing. We tried to email people and get them to sign up to host phone banks and sign up to attend phone banks. That didn't work. Then we were going to try, we experimented with all sorts of different, you know, different ways to get people to produce these results, right? And we ended up doing a string of events. We were trying to do one in Massachusetts where we we're going to teach people to use the voter files and the voter tools like van that ended up not being the thing. And we just kept trying and we were experimenting with different ways of doing this. And Zach and I ended up, um, in Arkansas, we set up this series of events that went all the way back to Johnson city. I think there was nine or 10 events. And we were essentially going to be experimenting all the way through from little rock, Arkansas, all the way to Johnson city with different, ideas and to see what worked. And then ultimately along the way, I think probably somewhere in Nashville, we came up with a, a structure that worked, right? And it ended up ultimately being called, uh, we called them barnstorms. It was a technique that uh, ended up being utilized in Beto's campaign by Becky Bond and other folks that were involved in the Bernie, Canter, Bernie campaign. The first one, it was used to great effect uh, in Bernie's second campaign. 
when it was actually integrated with the the traditional campaign more effectively, in my opinion, by Claire Sandberg. So then ultimately what we ended up doing, uh, I worked with Shoykat, Chakrabarty, Zach. Shoykat was in developing tools and developing systems. He was on the tech side of things. Um, and we just kept honing that barnstorm concept. And essentially you'd bring people into a room, uh, sometimes a dozen people, sometimes a thousand people, depends on what the situation was. West Virginia was on, you know, they were feeling the burn. So we, they filled up rooms and we got people to commit. And it was kind of interesting. What ended up actually working is you give this pitch, right, about the campaign, its uh, its possibilities, its trajectory. Then you talk, you know, sort of like getting people bought into the concept to start with. Then you talk about how they can help, what the point of phone banking or the point of text banking, whatever it is you're trying to get them to do is, right, how that can actually be impactful in the results and tangible results. And then you make the ask for volunteer hosts, right? And then you would actually do uh, what Zach liked to call an altar call because he was from sort of this uh, more evangelical uh, world. And you would bring people down. There was, you know, paperwork and various things, you know, various details that you did. But basically you brought them down to the front. These were the volunteers from this community that were going to host uh, phone banks in their homes and their Starbucks, wherever it was. And we would let them introduce themselves to the rest of the crowd, right? And and then they would talk about what they were going to have. They're going to have chips or this or that or whatever. You know, so it was sort of like the description of these people's commitment to doing a thing. Then you would make the ask to the crowd to then make sure that happens by, by uh, committing to join them, right? And then those people would physically walk up and sign a attendance sheet for that particular host that they were going to go. Then we had a data team that would enter the emails and train and da, 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 da. But the real thing that happened there was a social commitment between the attendees and the host. And that turned out to be the thing that made this way more tangible to people. The drop-off rate became nearly zero. It was quite remarkable. And then you were able to get people to do more and more. You were able to get people to take on more responsibility. It was also this perfect way to find new super volunteers because you would see who would do multiple things. It became a very valuable organizing tool. And then, you know, it grew and grew and then people honed it. Like I say, the Beto campaign, they actually got it to the point where volunteers were doing the barnstorms themselves, right? It was like this multi-layer marketing thing where it was just sort of exponential growth. It was quite remarkable. Sanders doesn't ultimately pick up the nomination that time. No. How did that hit you? It hit me, I accepted it more quickly than a lot of people did. So we, I left the Sanders campaign before California, which is I think when a lot of people actually gave up. Um, and I left with Shoycott and Zach to start brand new Congress. Um, and like so many other things, I think if you leave something for something new, it's not quite, not quite as hard. Right. So there was this new, and I thought actually, ultimately, if it could be done more powerful thing, like, I mean, as far as just branches of government go, the legislative branch of our government, if it has a supermajority, is the most powerful branch of our government. It can do near anything. So uh, it didn't hit me as hard because I had given up hope a while earlier. And I was still, at that point, I was just trying to, you know, maintain a forward trajectory with things, right? And I thought brand new Congress was a, a good way to do that. Tell me about brand new Congress. I tracked it when Zach was talking about it uh, at the time. How did it go? Uh, yeah. 
And what were it you depends to on do? how you look at it, I guess, doesn't it? Um, I think it was one of the most successful utter failures ever um, in a lot of ways. So the original goal we set out to do was to recruit hundreds of people to run for House and Senate, right? And we were focusing in on 2020. This is when most people assume that Hillary Clinton will be president, right? So the idea of brand new Congress is to not worry about uh, political affiliation of the people you're backing. And the reason for that was, is that somewhere at the time around 70 or 80% of congressional districts were either red or blue. If you really wanted to be involved in changing who's in Congress, that was through primaries, right? So if, for example, Tennessee two, where I live now, if you don't want Tim Burgett to be representing uh, Tennessee two, then you're going to beat him in a Republican primary. And it happens to be an open primary. Anybody can vote in it. So we thought, well, let's just go ahead and compete in some of those, right? Knoxville, Tennessee, too, was one of the ones we wanted to compete in and recruited somebody for ultimately. The idea was recruit a bunch of people, run this big slate uh, of people that are committed to one another, committed to a policy platform, running across the country, promising through their capacity to actually do. But, you know, one of the things that I think makes presidential races so much more exciting than a House race or a Senate race is because people believe that presidents have the capacity to actually make change. Right. Whether they're right or wrong, they believe that. And they definitely do. But, you know, it's limited. So what we hoped was is that you could capture the same sort of enthusiasm with a narrative of possibility. Right. With the real possibility, if you can get even a, you know, a majority, let alone a supermajority, uh, then you can really accomplish some major major changes. We started, I don't know, I think it was March or April. It was before January of, or before um, the, the California primary when we first launched. And we had a pretty good launch. I mean, we got some coverage out of it. There was Bernie's campaign was winding down. There was the what's next for the Bernie wing of the party, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of caught that wave a little bit and got a decent start. We've got, I don't know, ultimately we were asking for nominations for House and Senate races. And we got somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 nominations over the course of a few months. 10,000 nominations is a hard thing to run through when you're trying to call these people, interview them and do all the things you're trying to do. It's a large number. Then, you know, Donald Trump ultimately wins the White House and the presidency. And I, that idea sort of, in my mind, was no longer the idea for the moment, right? This sort of, we're going to do Republicans, independents and Democrats didn't make sense anymore. It certainly wasn't an idea that lacked for ambition, though, right? Like, for- <laughs> no, it was not. It was not. But, you know, and I, that, I think, is one of the things that's, you know, you fast forward to, you know, started Justice Democrats, recruited some people, ended up running 12, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wins. She wouldn't have run if you were working with people that, you know, lacked ambition or even considered what was feasible. Like I remember I got an email from a New York journalist one time when I'm working with Alexandria before the primary, the phrase they came back with, I was talking about how it was going to be this big moment. You know, you guys don't want to miss this. And he says, nobody knows anything about politics. You know, it's anything's unpredictable, but what I know for sure and can guarantee you with certainty is that Alexandria is not going to beat Joe Crowley. And also I think if you didn't believe, if you had had any political experience before, you wouldn't do a sit-in in the speaker's office either. You know, it would just, it would be asinine to do that. So I think there's value to not understanding what's possible. I think there is in entrepreneurship everywhere, right? Inside and outside of politics, you're pretty much guaranteed if you're starting a company for it to go under in the first five years, 
And if you don't know that, right, you might actually try and you might be one of the ones who make it. And I think it's the same thing, especially if you're running against an entrenched incumbent who's high in the leadership of the House in a safe Democratic district. That bet that uh, the reporter you talked to made was a pretty safe bet. It just happened to be wrong in that case. Yeah. The reelection rate for representatives was somewhere in the neighborhood 97%. There was more turnover in European monarchy at the time than in the House. It's <laughs> so. a good line. So tell me about the starting of the Justice Democrats. So, you know, as I mentioned, it was sort of this moment where we didn't think, Zach Shortcut and a handful of others that were, you know, Alexander Rojas, didn't think that it was really the time for this Republican nonpartisan concept. It, there was this, this, you know, a real divide. So we were approached by uh, Kyle Kalinske and Cenk Uger about doing something like Brand New Congress, but focusing more on on Democrats. Kyle Kalinske, has, he does a, a YouTube show. And then Cenk uh, uh, Uger is uh, the, I guess, the founder and CEO of uh, the Young Turks uh, network on YouTube and, and other places. And they wanted to do something similar to Brand New Congress, but they thought our idea was insane. They wanted to do a smaller version, right? And so we talked to them a lot and then decided on what became Justice Democrats, right? We were going to model it around the same concept, but focus entirely on safe blue districts competing in primaries and focusing there. And we launched that basically right around inauguration for Trump, somewhere in January 2017. And we'd had... We had decent success with fundraising at first. We were working with Paul Jean Swearingen in uh, West Virginia. She was running against Joe Manchin at the time. Uh, Corey Bush was running against Lacey Clay, Alexandria. It worked out pretty well. TYT had a good platform. Kyle had a good platform. We had developed good systems, good processes. All these things were working. Uh, and we got off to a pretty good start. Uh, we were still, though, for the first, I mean, basically until December of that year, or November maybe, of 17. So the elections are right around the corner in 18, right? Uh, we were still trying to recruit candidates. We'd, we had 12 on the slate at the time, I think. Uh, we had some in Texas, Charlie Richardson in Florida, handful of others anyway. But we'd focused way too much of our energy, our resources, our time, our thought on building this slate. We did not quickly enough give up on the idea of building the slate and focusing in on some of these candidates. But November, December, Somewhere in that neighborhood, we decide, okay, that pipe dream's dead, but we do have enough capacity to really get behind. At first, we said three. We get we pick three, right? And then we start looking at the numbers and the staff. And I'm like, okay, maybe two. Turns out we've got enough to really get behind one candidate. And so we're looking at who that would be, right? What you know, and there's all sorts of criteria we're looking at: capacity to actually win. What if they do win? How big of an impact would it be? All the various things that we were looking at. You know, obviously Corey was one of the ones that we were looking at. Similar circumstances to Alexandria in that it was an entrenched incumbent. But one of the things that stood out was the number four Democrat in the House. Right? We thought that could be you know a big deal. And Joe Crowley was sort of being talked about as possibly the you know being elevated speaker at some point and it seemed like a good one plus she was just really good she was good at messaging she was good on social she was a good messenger uh, and a good candidate so we kicked that around and decided to go all in on her campaign and somewhere in december and then shoycott went up in january i think uh, and went full-time on her campaign 
When did you first meet her? I, I met her. I didn't meet her in person until I don't know, February or March of that year. Zach and Shoykot had met her back in the recruiting stage. They had lunch with her and stuff and uh, various other things. What were you guys saying about her at that time? This is before you're discovering her to some extent. What were you saying? Yeah. So I mean, I guess actually, no, I did meet her before then because we went to this retreat in Kentucky. So whenever that, that was in middle of 17, rather summer of 17. Um, what we were saying was, you know, what really drew us, because like I said, there was 12 folks, right? Um, Adrian Bell, Trotter Richardson, Paula Jean Swearingen. I mean, Paula would have been a huge one just because it was Senate, right? But there was no, the money wasn't there. We didn't have, you know, there was no way to do that. That was not a win we thought we could pull off. What we were saying was, is that it's a low turnout election. So the mechanics of the, of the race, I think, were the things that we found really compelling. Low turnout. You don't need that many votes to win. This guy's not spending any money. He does, he's not at all scared. It's not just the reporters that thought that's not possible. Every person he's surrounded by, including Joe Crowley. I mean, election night, he's playing Born to Run, and I can tell you that's not for Alexandria. He, he ultimately dedicated it to her, but that, that was absolutely his election victory night song. I mean, to election night, they didn't think they were going to lose, right? We had a poll that said they were 30 points up eight weeks before anyway. So... That was one of the things that really drew us to the race was the dynamics of the race itself. But I mean, did I know that Alexandria was going to be a telegenic media star that could go walk onto, you know, the late show and kill it? Nah. Did I know she was good in interviews and stuff when we were practicing and coaching and training? Yeah, for sure. Right. Did I know that she looked good on camera? Absolutely. But I didn't know she was going to be the Michael Jordan of American left politics. No. So, um, so uh, what was your role in that campaign? I was communications director. It was an interesting place to be. I'll tell you. Why? Uh, well, because in the run-up, before the primary victory, I mean, so I'm working, Shoycott's campaign manager, uh, VG Ramos was doing campaign manager work. She ended up transitioning to some other parts of the campaign. So, Shoy, you know, I'm basically working with the folks I've been working with for the last several years, right? We're doing the same kind of concepts we're doing. I don't know, we had $8,000 in the bank and spent $6,000 on the ad. You know, the one that ultimately went very viral and, you know, the women like me aren't supposed to run for Congress and all that, right? Being in a campaign that's just that willing to push the chips in and take chances was really fun. So that's before. Then she wins, right? We had this documentarian with us since the brand new Congress days, uh, Rachel Lears, who was doing what ultimately became Knock Down the House. Yeah, I watched um, that. So she's there and around, and it was just I'm turning down Jimmy Fallon, uh, you know, because we got so much going on. Like just the the instant um, gratification. <laughs> of that work, right? Because it had been a slog, right? And then, you know, Amy Valella had lost. Corey Bush was, you know, all these people were losing their races. Paul Jean had lost. And it seemed sort of hopeless. So that was why it was such an exciting place to be then on election night. And you've got, you know, Hillary Clinton's calling. So this just, this instant elevation of our capacity to do things changes instantly. That was one of the things that made it exciting. It was like, 
I'd been learning to shoot basketball on a normal court, and then they just gave me like a little tykes goal, right? Everything became easier. If I called somebody, they answered the phone. It became, you know, no longer about let's try to pitch, you know, which media outlets we're going to do. It was about which magazine covers do we think make the most sense. It became such a capacity for strategy. It was just really a fun place to be at the time. Did you feel ready for it? I mean, you no. go New York. Pol- I mean, New York <laughs> politics, national politics, both of them. It's like an explosion, right? Uh, how did you feel in the middle of that? I mean, I think I felt maybe a one percent of the pressure and and just the weight that Alexandria felt. Right. Also, you know, she often talked about this sort of imposter syndrome, right? That she felt in. Con- I think we all felt that. I'm, I mean, you know. Everybody I talked to and knew closely enough to talk about those things felt that way. Just, yeah, I mean, you just, you skipped the line. And that's one of the ultimate things I think that developed the long-term resentments uh, for her that she's had to deal with in politics is this, I, you know, just circumvented so much that is traditional route-wise. Um, so, yeah, was I ready? No, I didn't feel like I was ready. But you were constantly drinking from a fire hose of, of requests and, and trying to balance the things that you started thinking about and the ways you started balancing things. Uh, one of the things I did not learn early enough was that she's a human being and not a political tool. I eventually learned that. For example, I think in the first 30 days or so after the primary, she did 46 interviews or something, you know, and these weren't just like little interviews. These were big interviews, right? I don't think anybody that had any sense as a communications director or had any experience would have done that. Nobody would have trusted their principal, I think, to be able to maintain in that environment if they'd never been there, right? She was untested in that. It wouldn't, you know, it was crazy. (laughs) So again, though, my not being ready, I think helped in some, some ways. Whenever you have a tight-knit group of people, I'm assuming it was, and they are suddenly exposed to riches or notoriety or whatever, I think that everybody responds differently and people can hold together and have each other's backs or there can be infighting. All kinds of things can happen. What happened with your group as you move from like upstart to winner? I mean... Yeah, it was, uh, I think that's the other thing that made it such an amazing place to be at the time is that it became, I've read books about being in the zone, right? And it's an interesting place to be in the zone. I'd never really experienced being in the zone with a team, right? Where somebody drops a ball here, somebody else picks it up, you know, and just this um, feeling of luck, continuous luck. Right. Something, you know, you go back to pre-primary and there's this run. We get uh, a Vogue article. Uh, we get the the uh, video goes viral. Then Ro Khanna does the weird dual endorsement thing, which turns out to be way more of a news story than if he had just endorsed outright. You know, these things just sort of fell into place and it continued to do so for a long, long time. And I think partly that was just actual luck. Right. But I think also that was just being part of a team that was focused on a mission. And, you know, the mission was for a long time. I mean, she gives this speech on election night. She didn't write a speech. She she didn't write speeches the whole time I knew her much. I mean, she would take notes and, you know, put down ideas, but didn't write speeches really. And it's all about 
us, right? How we're going to be doing this, you know, and it sounds, it's like drivel when most politicians are saying, it, right? Because it's not genuine at all, but she absolutely meant it. Not only meant it, but then that's what we did. I mean, we ended up, uh, I don't know, a month later after she's doing all this shit, we're on a plane flying to Honolulu to go try to help this uh, congressional candidate. that was a brand new Congress candidate, uh, Kanyela Ng. Um, you know, we fly there, we land in the morning, we do two events, we're on a plane, we're flying back. I mean, you know, the level of commitment from the team and from Alexandria and from everybody else, you know, we do this thing in St. Louis, we go do some events with Corey Bush. Uh, we're doing uh, stuff with Rashida and Ilhan, uh, or Rashida rather in, uh, in Michigan. The team was unified behind a mission of continuing to bring about political change, right? And that was the way it was, you know, most of the time I was there. So, so you, you went with her to Congress, right? What, yeah. What was your position on the staff? And I was the, the communications director on staff there. Yeah. How was that different? And you alluded earlier to it not being an easy year. Uh, or not necessarily what you wanted. What was it actually? Well, I mean, it's it's not a campaign anymore. It's different roles. I mean, so like there's a group in Rhode Island. I think it's called the uh, Political Cooperative. And it's Matt Brown and a handful of other folks that are uh, doing this uh, work to try to recruit candidates to run for state house and, and other offices at the state level and sort of trying to do a brand new Rhode Island, if you will, right? And... Their mission is to build a supermajority. That's their mission. And uh, they've gotten some wins, and that's still the mission. So that's still, in a way, a campaign, right? The rest of the Rhode Island legislature is doing that work, right? There's definitely day-to-day work that's got to be done. Somebody's got to do it, no doubt, right? But right now, they're not in the majority. They're not supermajority. They're still doing their thing, which is trying to take the seats from people sitting beside of them. And that's what I wanted to do. Right. And then, you know, but instead we were, you know, what that job's not that. That's not the job of a of a house communications director. Your job is to put together press releases. Your job is to put together press printing pads and do press conferences and make sure that the, you know, the appropriate ranking member is standing in the appropriate place and that they've got the appropriate speaking order to dignify their time in Congress. And you know what I mean? It's like this a lot of feelings in Congress. People got a lot of feelings and a lot of egos for better, for worse, you know, whatever your opinion is there, but it just, you know, some people are, some people are, you know, you're, you're, you bring the appropriate tool to the job and I was not the tool for that job. Why did you leave? I wasn't the tool for the job. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, was, it wasn't what I uh, was going to be good at long-term. I was no longer a asset to the team in that way. I don't think so. Did they push you out or did you push yourself out? Nobody really pushed anything. I don't think it was just like, okay, this is sort of run its course. Um, here we go. Let's do our next thing. And did you then, did you stay with the campaign part of her operation? Yeah, I was with the yeah. campaign for a while and did some work on the PAC side um, and did that, you know, up into the pandemic some, and the pandemic got weird, right? So I, I was working also with Bernie Sanders campaign again in 2020 and then I decided to sort of, you know, I'd done it for what, six years, I guess at that point, I decided uh, I was going to take a break and see what Tennessee was doing. Well, I'm probably wearing you out a bit, but tell me a little about the, the 2020 version of Sanders and how it differed for you than the first time. I mean, the campaign is, so obviously I was in a different 
role. I was not as actively involved. I was working basically in the media team with endorsees and that sort of thing, right? Uh, mostly with Alexandria, sort of doing the liaison between the two camps um, and helping plan uh, events. And then, you know, the culmination of the work uh, that I did basically was that rally in Queens. I would think that's the that's the thing that I worked on the most and was most excited to, you know, I was working with Ari Ravenhoff and some other people on that and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. Um, and just seeing like, so seeing what like Claire Sandberg was working, I think she was running the whole distributed campaign side at that point and seeing how she had evolved the things that uh, we built in the 2016 race, then that had been sort of evolved in Beto's campaign and had been involved along the way since that and seeing how she had incorporated it to be more holistic in the campaign. I think that that campaign outperformed most expectations, certainly most reasonable expectations. I thought he had a damn good chance of winning. I thought he had the pole position. Were you surprised he didn't? Uh, no, because I'm, uh, I'm a pessimist. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was I, yeah, there was moments where I actually thought we can do this, right? This is going to happen this time. And then I got really worried, like, would he be a good president? Is he going to be good at this? I hope so. Let's, because this, you know, going to put a lot of pressure. Well, it was a, it was a race that had to be won. It's a big job. Yeah, it's a huge job. So I was impressed with the campaign. I mean, you know, it's, what do they call it? Uh, armchair quarterback, that thing. All You know, I think one of the things that makes it hard for um, my lane of politics, the, our lane, is this aversion to media and this disdain for media. And, it's similar. The Democratic Party, I think, writ large, has a similar problem, and I, it was really, I think, visible when the when the impeachment was going on. And I remember Kamala Harris, who's then a senator, talking on CBS this morning or something. She was sitting in the, the rotunda, I believe, doing an interview. Right while you know people would pop out and do interviews, and she was talking about how this is a very solemn affair. This is you know a very ser- essentially this is a very serious thing. It has to be taken you know dealt dealt with seriously echoing sort of Pelosi's sentiment too, uh, through the whole thing. And I think at one point used the phrase, this is not reality television, right? And when you hear that and you understand if your goal is to actually change, you're not going to get a conviction in the Senate. You're not getting 64, 67 votes, whatever it was that we needed there, right? So your only hope as a party right now is that you win the public heart. That's the only goal you should have, in my opinion, right? And to misread the American public through, I think, disdain for the American public, disrespect for the American public, and a lack of understanding of who we are as a people is a real problem. And I think there's that sort of bleeds out into our lane with this idea that CNN is out to get Bernie. I think CNN is out to make money, mostly. And if they can get good ratings, I mean, they were putting Alexandria on everything. I didn't care what she said. She could you know, she could fist fight with one of those people and they would have put her on the next day. But the, you know, the problem was, is that we weren't willing to, I don't think, be open to utilizing the media in an effective way. But that's just my opinion. (laughs) So I didn't quite grasp one thing you said there, which was like what it was you thought that Kamala, et cetera, were misreading about the public. What would you have liked? It was reality television. It is reality television. And she needed to, in your view, she needed to perform that way? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I don't think, most people don't hear, they're not going to listen to 12 hours 
of this coverage. They're going to listen to two minutes at max, right? And if you don't have a understandable, cohesive message about what just happened and why we're impeaching this guy, you know, and how it hurts you or helps you as a, you know, as the public, then you're done, right? The, the idea that they were sort of centering themselves on is that they wanted to see, they being the American people, what they're most interested in is seeing a return to normalcy and to see that there were adults at the steering wheel steering the ship, right? That's actually another thing I don't think most people questioned. So if you were advising AOC and she was doing that interview at that moment, what would you guys come up with? What might she have said? I would have stuck with one thing, with the corruption angle. I would have just stuck with the man lying in his pockets, selling out. I would have just stuck with that. There were so many things. Use that moment to hit him. Just hit him. Yep. Just hit him and make him look like somebody that's selling America down the river. Right. That's and that's certainly selling- what he would do. He would use the moment. He would use the moment to be the reality TV president, which he was. Absolutely. We dodged a bullet, right? He he was so disinterested in actually doing anything politically. He was so disinterested, really, in building political power and doing the work to build it, right, outside of the television. And he had not built a real machine at all to replace the RNC. But the Democrats, I think, lost that opportunity to build. We're seeing it right now in the midterms, right? What we're watching is... Democrats thinking that they've got, you know, 60 competitive races or 30 competitive races, whatever it is they think they've got. Right. And they're going to try to go dump money in there and attack the opponents. They're going to, you know, they're going to they're running everything like it's Fetterman against Oz. The problem is the Democratic Party's brand. You know, the reason we can't win in these races is because the Democratic Party's brand as a national brand is broken, busted and worthless. Right now, instead of going out there and putting the nuts that are pulling the Republican Party into an insane place, the QAnon people that are actually in Congress, that are actually in the Senate, that, you know, instead of making them look like absolute morons, what you had instead in 20 was you had the Democratic nominee for the party out there saying we need a strong Republican Party. You had the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, saying we need strong. They think in order to get Republican votes, they've got to be nice to the Republican Party as a brand. They want to be dignified and obey the norms of the earlier era. And they think that will be the strategy rather than, sounds like you're saying we're in an era of street fight. And it's brand warfare. Coca-Cola is never going to tell you Pepsi is a good thing and we're glad to have competition. It's not going to happen. They're going to go after them. They're going to go after market share. What you're trying to do is win market share. And they're just trying to win individual races. And I think that, and they want to do it by, and you're seeing the same thing now. Like, you know, Joe Manchin, everybody's afraid he might switch parties or, you know, what I don't know what is they afraid he's going to do, right? But they basically ceded all leverage to Joe Manchin. And it's the way they operate across the board. They being leadership in the Democratic Party, they operate as if they have zero leverage, for a Seinfeld reference, they have no hand, ever. You um, started something, a pack called No Excuses, which I guess aims at showing that there's some leverage with respect to Mansion and Cinema. What, what was the idea there? I mean, the idea was you go shit where they eat, I guess, is part of it. Like, for example, you just finally see a New York Times piece come out about Joe Manchin's um, coal ties, right? I mean, everybody knows that it's there. It's just sort of this unspoken thing, you know? Um, And he's obviously real sensitive about it. I watched the CNN house correspondent um, ask him about it one day, and he got really heated about that, you know? Um, So nobody asked him about it. There's a bully pulpit that a president has 
um, that is useful. There's people that are popular uh, in West Virginia, and it's not AOC. Bernie's popular. There's ways. There's ways you could do it. There's things that make him vulnerable at home. But instead of trying to figure out what those things are, there was the idea that you couldn't pressure Joe Manchin into anything, and it may be true, but you could make it look less fun. You know, it looked so fun to be king of the Senate that Kirsten Sinema wanted to do it. You know, I think you could make it look like something that's not a, a pleasant experience. And I don't think it's through, you know, sunrise activists chanting at his yacht. I don't think that's the that's not what's going to move anything. If it were me, I'd start running ads against the people funding his campaign. I'd run ads about the money. I'd run ads about the coal. And that's what we tried to do some. And we got a little bit of, you know, we got some uh outsized attention for what we were able to spend and do. We didn't do much, but uh, I think we, we turned it into a little bit. So uh, it's still going. Yeah. We're st- and I'm trying to get some ideas on how to get more involved in this midterm. Um, we're running out of time, but I think there's some interesting things to talk about. We're going to try to do some of that. So I, mean, I, th- I, I, I couldn't really agree more with you that, that going into the midterm, there is a astonishing lack of party based intent to communicate forcefully why the other side is bad and why the side is good. There's no chief propagandist. There's no like banding together, at least so far. And it's terrifying. It reminds me of the scene from Jurassic Park where the T-Rex is looking at them and they all just sort of want to stand still, right? The the party is afraid of losing its majority. They're afraid of, you know, they're afraid of taking a beating in the midterms. And I think they're right to be. Their analysis, I agree with up to that point. But then what to do about it is to basically their theory. And it's the theory of politics in general once you get elected. And that's the thing that drove me crazy is the less you do, the better off you'll be. And it's because of the the reelection rates. It's because of so many things. Right. But their theory is do nothing. That way we don't get any attention. You know, I don't know if that's their theory, but they have they've I mean, they've they've passed certain things, but there seems to be a lack of interest in highlighting what they have done or making the argument still for what they've tried to do or to highlight what the crazy is, as you mentioned earlier, on the other side. I think they're terrified of highlighting the things that they did do. That's a fact. Yes. I think for, you know, you saw that play out in the earned income the child credits, right? The the sort of advanced payments there. And the fact that they let that lapse sort of guaranteed that they can't run on it because if they ran on it, uh, then they would be afraid of having to make the argument why they didn't extend them. The funny thing is that if Republicans had been in the exact same position, they would still run on it. And they would just ignore the questions about why they didn't extend it. There's this weird thing where Republicans don't mind hypocrisy. They also don't mind being wrong. They don't mind saying things that are patently untrue. Um, but Democrats don't even want to exaggerate. Anyway, so I think that, yes, you're right. There is a a hesitancy to run, and I think it's because they think the American public instantly doesn't like their ideas, but it's not instantly. There's Fox News, there's Breitbart, there's a whole right-wing echo chamber. They're getting worked over. They're getting worked over, and they're not aggressively in any way, shape, or form going out there and making their case. They're wanting people just to think it through and then realize they're right, and then when the polling says that they don't, And they're like, well, I guess it was a bad move. We can't go out there and sell this thing. We can't go out there and show, you know, childhood poverty was reduced by a significant amount because of CARES, right? Now, instead of going out there and showing the people's lives that were impacted, how they were changed, the kids who were eating food and being able to go to, you know, out do extracurricular activities and sports and stuff because of this money, 
right? The mothers that can make it through the week now with money in the bank that, that couldn't before, the families whose lives were transformed, instead of putting them out there and showing that this is working, they, they ran away from it. There is no cohesive message, as you said. There's nobody, there are no propagandists out there. You have a bit of a knack for uh, a phrase that can catch people's attention. You recently, uh, I guess, were asked about Biden and said he's old as shit. He's deeply unpopular and uh, his party's going to get demolished in the midterms. All sentences or phrases that are highly ear catching, if that's a word. What's your purpose there? My purpose there, I was being asked about my assessment of where the party is, how how they're positioned, and then why I think we're positioned that way, and what my um, read was about how people were feeling, at least where I'm at. So my purpose there is to say, it's people want to be, I took a hit for that, you know? From people who? were very irritated. Uh, from From party operatives, from, uh, you know, that uh, it cost me some... Uh, it cost me a little bit to say that, but it's, you know, they want to pretend they being the party itself from the operatives up to the electeds want to pretend like there's nothing going on, that this is just normal, that that we've got a party led by folks in their late 70s and early 80s, that we've got a people that are driving this ship that have been there since, you know, <laughs> It's the same. And not for nothing, they went through, part of the problem is they went through Reagan instead of going through Obama as far as when they were coming up, right? And it gives them a different perspective on how to, I think, operate with the, within political bounds. I mean, there, there are things that Pelosi and Biden know from experience that are valuable, and there are things that make them blind, I think. You know, I think it's both. I would rather probably have Biden in charge when Russia attacks Ukraine than some telegenic 40-year-old. Uh, it's working out for uh, Ukraine to have a telegenic 40-year-old. It is sort of, maybe. Uh, we'll, I mean, see. we'll see. I would say it's... it's I mean, he's, he's, he's certainly leading in a compelling he's way. certainly and leading. I'm, I'm certainly rooting for him, and I'm certainly... Uh, um, like a, a lot of people are, I think, in awe of his courage in this moment. And I think anybody rooting for a party or rooting for a cause wants a compelling leader, right? And it's it's certainly the case that like Biden doesn't have strength on the stump, right? He just he just doesn't have it anymore. From people I hear who work with him, he's still fairly sharp in his personal exchanges and has purpose when he does things, but he's not John Kennedy, you know, and, and, and that's what we've got right now. Who do you hope runs in, you know, like if he say he doesn't run or say he should be primaried by somebody who can, you know, take the movement to power, who would you like to see? That changes uh, all the time. Obviously I'd, I'd like to see a pretty open. I mean, I think if you get, a handful of people in there running, then it's going to be a big primary. Obviously, I think there's going to be a lot of people vying for that. I'd like to see a a Rokana running. I'd like to see. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see a well versed person that's sort of tangentially related to politics. 
I'm picturing George Clooney in my mind right now, but I, you know, not literally George Clooney, not literally the rock, somebody from that sort of vein. What I think we need to be as a, as a people is united behind a mission of America. And I think right now, the only people leading on that mission are the right wing. The only people that are out there advocating for America being a nation that's intent on rebuilding itself are ones that are doing it with fear and hate as opposed to hope and vision. And wanting to take us backwards rather than forwards. Absolutely. Right. And I think when you when you look at sort of the crises that we're facing, part of what we're doing right now is we're burning up a lot of capital. You mentioned Ukraine, right? One of the things we're burning up right now is the American dollar as a global reserve currency. That is something that, that is going to be sort of softened. Its role there, its sort of solvency as that global reserve currency will be softened a little bit. I sort of feel like we're a country that's living off of the exploits of generations before, right? We're, we're sort of like the, the rich kids that inherited, uh, you know, great wealth from our grandparents and great grandparents and a lot of other people. And we sort of mismanaged that. And we sort of take our dominance, our capacity to live a high quality life for granted. You know, we have a disconnection from the economy. I remember during the pandemic, a lot on the left were saying we can't kill people over the economy, right? And there, that struck me as so crazy because the economy is not just money. It's not just Wall Street. It's food, it's clothing, it's shelter, it's power, it's hospitals. The economy is what keeps us all alive. When you look at climate change and all these other big challenges that we've got to solve in this country, you've got a couple options. One is the Flintstones and one is the Jetsons. And I hope we go the Jetsons route. I want to see us build our way into a more prosperous, healthier, safer future. And I think that if you found somebody that could lead behind the message of growth and hope and not get entangled with a lot of the political drama that goes with that, then that's who I'd like to see run. But I don't know who that is. Well, you've done you've done some time as a staffer on campaigns and in, in Congress. You've done some time recruiting people to run for office. Why not run yourself if you have these convictions and you are out there in Tennessee? Why not throw your hat in the ring? Uh, well, I don't know. I've just never. Uh, it's just not a role that you know. Some people produce TV. Some people act. I guess. Um, Sometimes one goes from one to the other, I think. <laughs> Sometimes you do, I suppose. I don't know. I just, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I can be more use if I've, if I'm able to, you know, to, to support. I don't know. That's just where I've found to, you know, my niche, I think. At least I think it is. That's where I think I'm most useful and most helpful. I can hopefully try to, uh, continue doing that and growing in that role. So. Well, one of the things you've done is worked on this sort of second infrastructure for running for office for progressives, right? That, that settled on AOC. What do you think the state of that is right now? I've talked to some of the folks that are long shots in primaries that can't get the DCCC to support them, that are just as bad a bet as AOC was or worse. What do they have access to now because of Justice Democrats and other groups that are out there? Well, I mean, I'm probably biased. I mean, I'm certainly biased. But I think that uh, Justice Democrats, if you look at the field of institutional support for progressive candidates, I think Justice Democrats is the most effective, at least in 
both recruiting and then ultimately winning some of these races. Now, the problem is they've only won a handful, right? So they've won Alexandria, obviously, uh, and then Corey Bush, Jamal Bowman. And the problem is if you, I mean, if you look at the Tea Party, it never was institutionalized, right? It was very uh, grassroots. It stayed grassroots. It was all more messaging and based on ideology. So it was able to expand in a much more rapid way. I think they, one cycle, they won one. The next cycle, they won three. And the next cycle, they, you know, it was big. And then they just started, instead of winning, they were actually converting. And I think that's ultimately where you need to get to, is where you're taking these fence sitters, these people, because I think my at least read is that most politicians aren't that ideologically driven, right? That they're there uh, for a variety of reasons, most of the time it's not ideology. They're not that committed to one ideology or another. So if you can make the train leave the station, there's going to be a lot more people on it. But so I think that what you've seen is, uh, but where you are seeing a lot of other things happen is with IEs, you know, so you've got uh, way to lead. You've got uh, Justice Democrats has a, uh, an IE arm. PCCC has one. Um, the conserv, you know, the progressive caucus has a pack that's doing some things in terms of independent expenditures. So I think what you're going to see is a handful, you know, more this cycle. I think you're going to see some, you know, three or four, possibly, I think summer Lee has a really good shot. Keena Collins, maybe a sleeper that ends up doing some shocking some people. I think, uh, Jessica Cisneros in, uh, Texas against Henry Cuellar is a real possibility. Um, so, Again, maybe I'm biased, but I think uh, Justice Democrats uh, candidates, I, you know, Odessa Kelly, for example, is running in Tennessee, what's Tennessee 7 now, I guess, in Nashville, which the Republicans have a supermajority in both of our our houses in the House and the Senate stateside. So they redistrict, you know, it's 2020, whatever, and they cut up Nashville and they took what was a safe Democratic seat and made it three uh, that are probably going to go Republican. But I think that there is some opportunity here. I think that that thing that they did, you know, it's funny, like New York did the same thing when Democrats were in power. They separated the primary from the presidential primary. And so you had these two primary dates and for a long time it protected them because, you know, nobody could organize around it. But then the thing was, it also was their Achilles heel because nobody knew about the damn thing. So if you went out there and turned people onto it, Boom, you win. And I think the same thing is happening here with some of this gerrymandering. And especially the way they did Nashville, and I'm sure there's other places where this is the case too, is I think that there's some danger. If you can convert some of these rural voters, not that many, I think you can really transform some outcomes. It's definitely fun to talk to you. Is there, a qu is there a question that I didn't ask you that you wish I had or that you'd like to answer? I no, I think the uh, the one thing I would uh, uh, that I'm trying to convince some candidates and organizers around is a uh, willingness to change language. Like, for example, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, things that we think of as words that help us evaluate whether or not we like a candidate. I think we have to be uh, less uh, rigid in that evaluation. For example, Green New Deal especially carries a whole lot of baggage with it, doesn't you know? And I think of these messaging ideas. Uh, like a multi-stage rocket. You need one set of thrusters to get you out of the gravity. You know what I mean? And, and so this got you the attention. And now it's time to jettison that part of the part of the rocket and move on to the next one. Now it's about jobs. It's about comfortable housing. You know, and we need to come up with a new, a new catchphrase. They tried to build back better. That didn't work. Let's move on with our lives. Just something I've been talking a lot about with candidates and, and activists is this sort of uh, 
lack of rigidity in phrasing and focus more on outcomes and changing minds. So, but no, other than that, it's been really nice talking with you too. Anything else you want to say? No, sir. Been fun. That was Corbin Trent, founder of Justice Democrats and No Excuses PAC. Corbin is at noexcusespack.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.